Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, as always. Thank you for being with us for our show today. Um, I want to get right to the panel and start talking about the uh, political news and more in the headlines uh, today. uh, Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is uh, with me. Kevin, before the show, you pointed out that tomorrow, April 30th, we will have uh, already spent the first third of the year. We are a third of the way into 2021. I've said, I don't know how many times on this show that the days move slowly in the pandemic, but the weeks seem to fly by. And this is an example. Yeah. Good morning, Bill. Good to be with you. That was something I uh, I, I realized as I was just kind of looking at the calendar and doing some planning. You know, often we think about quarters or weeks, but in the end, uh, one third of the way through the year, and um, it just seems to have flown by. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for joining us, as always, on Thursdays, Kevin. We're also joined today by um, uh, Professor Audrey Haynes, Professor of Political Science at the University of Georgia, and, of course, the woman who oversees the Applied Politics Program at UGA, which prepares students for careers in politics. Audrey, you're in the middle of final exams this week. Are you finishing up the semester? This is actually our last week of class, and we have uh, perhaps one day next week, and then we move into finals. And I can tell you this, uh, students are certainly ready for it. They are ready for the semester to be over. Audrey, are you a tough grader, or are you like an easy A? Uh, you know what? I make people work for it. <laughs> Got to work for it. And uh, lots of feedback. The, the goal is improvement and learning. I, I love that. And thank you for joining us. Let's get right to it. Um, certainly, President Biden's uh, first speech in front of a joint uh, session of Congress last night and the fact that he's in Georgia today are going to dominate a lot of the news headlines today. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But, Kevin, let's start with uh, a development in the murder case uh, in the killing of Ahmad Arbery. Uh, he was already... Uh, the, the three men, Travis and Gregory McMichael and Roddy Bryan, were already uh, facing state murder charges in the case. But now uh, a federal grand jury has indicted them on federal hate crime charges, as well as a few other charges. Um, and there are a couple of interesting things to talk about in terms of that. When Ahmad Arbery was killed, uh, Georgia did not have a hate crime statute, so the Fed stepped in to make sure that it could be applied in this case. Yeah, and I do think, uh, Bill, it's important what you pointed out, because this can be confusing for people. To this point, all of the uh, stories, all of the information, all of the charges have been state charges, the way you would be charged in a, in a superior court. And because of the confusion about the dis- different district attorneys and their recusals and all this thing, Uh, It's an incredibly complicated and emotional case, but this is an entirely separate federal process where the feds have stepped in and said, hey, these three guys used force and threats of force to intimidate and interfere with Arbery's right to a public street because of his race. That's basically what the charges say, and it also accuses them of trying to kidnap him as he ran through that neighborhood. So it's a very, federal charges are always serious, but this is 
different from everything most people have heard about this case to this point. Um, Audrey, one of the things that's interesting about the federal charge, um, when Georgia uh, became uh, one of uh, the, the five, Georgia was one of the five states that had not passed a hate crimes law. They passed it last year after literally a couple decades of people working at doing it. One thing to note is that the state hate crimes law is a, a sentencing enhancement. It is not a standalone charge. And so you have to first be convicted of another crime before the penalty enhancement can be, a hate crimes enhancement can be added. That's not true of the federal law. Federal law is standalone. You can serve life in prison if you are convicted of a hate cri- federal hate crimes violation. That is true. And to put it in context, you know, many people may not remember that it wasn't that long ago that the federal hate crimes bill was passed. It was in 2009. And it was, uh, you know, named after uh, Michael Shepard and James Byrd. I mean, there I mean, there was a, a, a context of um, violence that you know, was being addressed. Now, a couple other things they may not know is that most uh, federal hate crimes that are referred from the states to the federal government are often not prosecuted. But part of the context that is interesting is that during the Trump administration, that percentage decreased even more while hate crimes increased. So I look at this event somewhat through a political lens, that it is the response from the federal government basically um, suggesting that that will end, that, you know, this is the, the role of the federal government is to protect the civil rights of all of its citizens. And, um, we may likely see uh, more uh, prosecutions, but generally the trend has been, even during the Obama administration, referrals, not that many that actually went to prosecution, um, but again, that number plummeted to some extent during the Trump administration. Um, Kevin, just to put a finishing touch on this portion of the conversation, um, the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Hate Crimes Prevention Act was, as Audrey pointed out, finally put into law in 2009, and it was a response to two heinous, heinous crimes of bigotry against uh, Matthew Shepard and James Byrd. And similarly, Georgia finally passed a hate crimes law because uh, largely of the death of Ahmad Arbery. Well, you know, the other thing that, that uh, came about, right, was the citizen's arrest law, the change in that that the legislature dealt with this year, too, also related to this case. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's important to note that while this case has not yet made it to trial, and of course, it's going to be a complicated case, and the defense, uh, the, we're starting to see the arguments we think the, the defense attorneys will make, but the impact Ahmed Arbery's death has had on Georgia is remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. I, I, I think that's really absolutely correct. Um, let's move on. Uh, President Biden gave his uh, his 100-day, basically, uh, report to the nation last night in front of a joint session of Congress. There were only 200 members allowed in the chamber, including members of Congress, uh, only the chief justice to the Supreme Court, only one representative of the military. So it was an odd looking event comparatively. But Audrey, uh, as he began his remarks, President Biden uh, made a very important note about the history of the picture that we saw of him and the two people behind him 
uh, as he spoke. He said, Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President, no president has ever said those words from this podium, and it's about time. Two women sitting behind the President of the United States, Audrey. Yes, and Biden voiced what you know one would consider to be very authentic enthusiasm for that, and you know a, a good bit of um, celebration for something that he probably believes he truly helped accomplish. That was a, a, a big moment, and um, you know a big moment for a lot of women who saw that, and young women especially. Um, now. You know, while while he was applauded for by by both sides, bipartisan applause for that, Kevin, he rolled out last night another trillion dollar plus federal program following the COVID Relief Act, uh, following his announcement, although we have not seen it move forward yet, of a trillion dollar plus infrastructure package. And last night he started talking about the American Families Act in, in great in greater detail which will uh, invest enormous amounts of money in free community college, two years of community college for all Americans, uh, free pre-K, um, plus a, a health care initiative, and, and much more. It's an expansive package, Kevin, and he'll be talking about it when he gets to Georgia today. So as a starting point, uh, this is a president who said when he was running for office that he was going to be a transitional president. He's turning out to be, uh, to be as progressive as, as FDR was in his first 100 days and certainly um, is uh, proposing initiatives that people are comparing to LBJ's uh, uh, years in office uh, when he took on poverty and decided it was time to transform the country in that way. It, it is remarkable because we have the massive relief package, the COVID relief package. I, we have the infrastructure package, and now we have a third, this uh, American Families Act. And what's interesting to me as I watch him do this is this, this decision he has to make about um, the Democratic and uh, only support of much of what he's doing, which is um, remarkable. And, and I think... This is a man who's seen how Congress can work and not work. He spent almost all his you know, political career in the Senate. And they, are, they clearly had a plan here because even this speech was made much later than it traditionally is made by a president in the inauguration year. So he's got you know, these three huge planes he's trying to land, and he is not backing off. Um, let's do this. Audrey, I want to bring you in on this, but we are in the middle of our pledge drive here at GPB Radio, and I've already heard from an awful lot of you who I'm very grateful have told me you are already uh, uh, helping support the work we do at GPB, and you're sorry that we have to take time to add more people uh, to the list of donors, but we really do have to do that. It's an essential thing we do only twice a year, and so uh, bear with us. And pardon us while I throw it to a, a pledge break so that you can learn how, if you are not helping us, you... Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
can do it today. The boss of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, editor Kevin Riley, and political science professor Audrey Haynes at the University of Georgia are with us today. Uh, Audrey, I talked about uh, Biden suddenly becoming a transformational uh, president, or at least there are people who think he is instead of a transitional one. Do you think it's fair to compare the proposals that he's making to LBJ in 64 and 65 when his great society proposals attempted to do much of the same thing? Uh, you know, he he pledged to end poverty. He didn't accomplish it, but he put any number of important federal programs in place to address it. That is true. And one might argue that this is somewhat the case. And, you know, uh, there have been people internal to um, Biden's administration that have attempted to frame the narrative in that way. Um, and I might argue that, you know, comparisons to FDR are interesting because one of the things that happened um, during the New Deal were that people of color, especially black Americans, were really left out of the process, yeah. uh, uh, significantly so. And had it not been for Eleanor Roosevelt, um, probably would have been ignored because that was something that she really championed um, in, in many ways. So, I mean, there there is a focus on poverty, but I think the people in the Biden administration believe that we really are at a turning point, that this is either the, the pivot point to the decline for America or uh, sort of a true building back to strength, not only economically, but in terms of leadership in the world. So he, he was saying a lot of things. I would note it was a very different speech. I've been talking to people, and even though we are still very polarized, um, that the references to the style difference, the um, attempt to bring in people and, you know, speak in a more, let's join together let's be hopeful, let's fix these problems, no reference to himself in the third person, some, some credit taking, but a lot of credit sharing. In fact, some credit sharing that probably was not really, um, you know, uh, true. It warranted. <laughs> yes, warranted is the word right there. So, um, you yeah. know, and I'm looking at it through a political lens, and I think he really attempted to reach the American public, particularly if you notice, he said jobs, 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 whether it is the America Families Plan or the Infrastructure Plan, which is called America's Jobs Plan. It's focused on a lot of those people who may have felt marginalized and who truly have been affected by COVID. And some of those who had potentially supported Trump in the last election because they felt marginalized. He, in fact, talked about blue-collar jobs. He specifically said that's who this program was aimed at, which is absolutely uh, trying to uh, win over the, uh, the Trump folks uh, from the last uh, five or six years. Kevin Riley, um, it's no accident, you certainly weigh in on any of this, but it's no accident that the president comes to Georgia the day after the election. This is the state that gives him at least the potential to pass some of this legislation. Yeah, I got to tell you, Bill, as a native Ohioan, as you know, this feels familiar, right? At crucial points in the legislative political process, the political season, the president shows up in your state. Well, look, I get he wants to visit Jimmy Carter, and I get Georgia's a beautiful place to be, especially this time of year. But let's just be honest. I mean, why is he here? Because suddenly this state is the most important state to this president. He has a he has a window. Who knows how how large it is and how long it is to get some of these things done? 
and he wants to make sure they're possible. I also think um, Amy pointed out how unique the speech was. I'm sorry, Audrey. I, I apologize, Audrey. Uh, I, we have Amy's tiger wall out and, and, uh, and Audrey on other weeks, and I, I, they're both so brilliant, I confuse them, and I'm busy trying to keep up with them. So I apologize, Audrey. But um, he, he has to um, keep – he has decided, I should say, to keep emphasizing the specifics of the proposal. Because I think that's the lesson from Obamacare that that White House learned, which was Obamacare, the affordable, which became what the Affordable Care Act was called, became like a bad word among many people, especially Republicans. And all through that, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, polled very poorly. But when polls were done about the individual aspects of the law, they were incredibly popular. So what he's obviously doing, and what I think we'll see him do in Georgia today, is to keep talking about these specific things. Because what American is against having their roads upgraded and fixed, right? Not very many. And I think that all of these things, including this idea that you go to community college for free, is incredibly popular among many people. Um, of course, Republicans are pushing back hard on the enormous amounts of money that President Biden is proposing spending on all of these various initiatives of his. Last night, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina uh, gave the response, the Republican response. He said, you know, Joe Biden seems like a really nice man, which was probably a very smart thing to say because people do relate to Biden in a personal way. But he called the program socialist. Um, which, of course, is what Republicans are pushing back uh, uh, with. And, and we should point out, Kevin, that this morning on Fox and Friends, Governor Kemp, whose state the president will be in today, uh, had his own response to the Biden speech. Uh, Sam Burmesdaw's found it for us. Let's hear it, Sam. But it's like someone said, when Democrats have complete control in Washington, D.C., you can be guaranteed that they will overreach. And that's what the president has been doing. It's what he's doing now with these additional spending packages. It's like he's governing for only blue states and has no idea what's happening in red states. You know, Audrey, this is going to be a really fascinating, fascinating argument to watch play out on both sides. As Kevin pointed out, some of the programs that Biden is proposing are going to be enormously popular. Uh, but, but, if Republicans have a stronger argument here that they think they can make, that these are, you know, federal government run amok, uh, we'll see how people respond to that. Well, and I think that's one of the reasons he used that speech as he did last night, because he knew it was the first one and it would reach a lot of people. It was long and it was it had plenty of detail, and he went over all of the things that he planned to do, I think hopefully so that a wide variety of people could hear the message before the narrative changed. And interestingly enough, I mean, he's talking about things like broadband, which Republicans in the state have been pushing for, and it's popular. And a lot of the programs that he's talking about will help you know, people in jobs in those rural areas and potentially bring jobs to some of those rural areas that Republicans, you know, want to see um, do well. I would note, I just want to mention a bit of research. So uh, there will be a lot of discussion about the cost of these 
plans. You know, and the federal budget, I think the recent one is, you know, somewhere around $4 trillion as it is. We have mandatory spending. We have discretionary, discretionary spending. There's not a lot of room, and we do have a very large budget deficit. But the Biden administration is hoping that with the economy going up, there's going to be all kinds of money coming in, right? But there's a great piece of research by a professor named Larry Bartels, um, a Princeton professor, and it really sets out the difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party when it comes to delivering real economic change to people in middle and lower income areas. And it shows without a doubt that Democratic policies are the ones that actually raise the votes of the individuals in those areas systematically. So a lot of what Biden is talking about is investment, and more so than FDR, probably more so than Johnson, his um, plan is really targeted at people in need. Now, those checks weren't. The checks were not targeted, but a lot of the policies, especially in the infrastructure plan, are about giving jobs and support um, and raising um, incomes of those people. And especially it focuses on children and children in poverty. And that's going to be hard to argue about. There, What we're only going to hear primarily from Republicans is not about policy, but about cost. Um, Kevin Riley, uh, it, it, I think you mentioned that, that Biden's going to be in planes with uh, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter today. And, and I it is it's it's kind of touching to think of him going down there. I mean, he's going to have a rally in Gwinnett County, an outdoor rally, which makes sense now that Gwinnett County has turned effectively blue in in most ways. Uh, but there's a sentimentality to a visit with Jimmy Carter. Biden was one of his strongest supporters uh, as a first term senator when Jimmy Carter came into the White House. So it's fat. I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing how that visit unfolds. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to see. And as you well know, Bill, because you've been to Plains and I've been to Plains, it's it's not exactly on the way to Gwinnett County. I mean, it is it is a long, <laughs> a long way from from Gwinnett County. And it is not a place that you you go to on your way to somewhere else. I mean, you got to go want to go to Plains. And uh, but I do think that uh, he's he's trying to probably. Uh, again, is he he wants to keep Georgia uh, supportive of him and hang on to that place in the Senate that he those seats in the Senate that he gained it, to to leverage the the good feelings people have about Jimmy Carter, who is potentially I mean arguably one of the most beloved person in our state. I mean I get that because he's a Democrat, Republicans would might naturally uh, speak out against some of what he has to say, but uh, certainly Jimmy Carter is someone you want to have your picture taken with, as I did when I went to see him teach Sunday school. <laughs> All right, Kevin Riley, we're going to give you the last word on, on this segment uh, of, of the uh, show, but we have much more uh, to talk about uh, coming up. But in the meantime, again, um, I, I know I've said this several times this week, but I just want to emphasize it again. Uh we know that you want as much political rewind as possible on any given day. But we also know, as I mentioned yesterday, that when um, I started this show seven years ago, it was a one-day-a-week show. We added a second day, and then a third, and, it, and, and then a fourth. And at the beginning of last year, in January of 2020, we went to five days a week because you told us the show means that much to you, which is really gratifying to us. And how could we have picked a better time 
to go to five days a week with an extraordinary presidential election, a terribly important U.S. Senate race in Georgia, with the pandemic taking hold, and we've tried to be with you, Sam, Amelia, Jesse, and I, every single day, along with panelists like Audrey Haynes and Kevin Riley, to help you understand in the most respectful way possible what is happening in our state and in our country. I hope we've done that. I hope you'll continue to support our efforts to do that. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Moving forward, and here's how you can do it. Audrey Haynes and Kevin Riley continue with me on today's show. Kevin Riley, uh, earlier this week, the New York Times made an announcement that must have perked up the ears of the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. They announced that they would no longer call uh, uh, articles written, opinion pieces written by people who are not part of the New York Times staff. They'd no longer call them op-ed pieces. I think they're just now calling them opinion essays or something uh, to that extent. And, and I bring that up really uh, not just because it's interesting that the term op-ed became ubiquitous in the newspaper industry since the Times invented that term a while back, but also because there's now this controversy that I don't quite get about an opinion piece that Stacey Abrams wrote for USA Today. So let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, this whole notion of an op-ed piece and what that means. Yeah, the term was uh, originally, I think, coined because it was the page opposite the editorial page, right? And that's what we learned, uh, that the idea was to uh, create a place in the newspaper where those who might have different opinions than the newspaper's editorial board or leadership could express those. And it's been a longstanding effort to uh, be a marketplace of ideas and voices in newspapers. Um, op-ed just became the shorthand term. And I don't know if the time now the Times now calls, calls them guest essays. Of course, they'll refer to them that way. And, and that, that's, in fact, what they typically are. Uh, it's probably more descriptive, for sure. But um, I, I just think that you can't make people change the way they talk very much. So I'll, I'll probably <laughs> today at some point, I'll probably get several requests or suggestions for op-eds. Um, and op-eds. Uh, I'm sure that's right. Yeah, because yeah. we, we changed uh, so let, some of the label on our, our opinion pages to solutions and some other things that we try to do um, as well. So, um, yeah, I'm happy to talk about this Stacey Abrams thing. Um, yeah, let me, let me just yeah. mention – yeah, I do want to ask you and Audrey about it. So let me set the stage so that it makes sense. So she wrote a piece, an opinion piece, an op-ed for the March 31st USA Today. And in it, this was a, a talking about the election law. And she wrote at that point that she doesn't believe boycotts are necessary, quote, yet. Um, and here was a paragraph in that uh, USA Today piece. Until we hear clear, unequivocal statements that show Georgia-based companies get what's at stake I can't argue with an individual's choice to opt for their competition. But after the after Major League Baseball pulled the game All-Star game out of Atlanta, she cha- the, she was allowed by USA Today to change that paragraph uh, to be I think a stronger reflection of support for what 
the uh, Major League Baseball's decision was, yes? And why is that a big deal? Yeah, so that's the question, Bill. Uh, and let me step back for a second. And I really think this is a great thing to talk about during GPB's uh, Pledge Week. And, and let me tell you why, because I know how hard you work on this show to kind of cut through all of the uh you know, all of the opining and what's going on on cable news stations and all that. And we certainly try to do that at the newspaper. So that would be my first suggestion to all your listeners. You just summarize the change. You can find a good summary of that change on our website and, 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 and some other places online. Read that. Then go read the two versions of the column. You can find those. And ask yourself, how big a deal is this? What do I think about it? <laughs> Because this is one of the things I see with regularity on both sides of the aisle. And this side happens to be the conservatives getting stirred up about Stacey Abrams, who seems to be the one person who can just get conservatives out of their minds all the time. And I'm not totally clear on why that is, but it is definitely clear. And what you will see if you Google it is a long list of the usual suspects, the Federalists, the Washington Examiner, Fox News, the Blaze. And they all picked up this same term, stealth edit. So I'm not sure who said that first, but it became a search term. It became what people are doing. And I think what you will, you should ask yourself, okay, I'm going to read these two versions. And in fact, has she fundamentally changed her opinion? You should ask yourself as you read that and make up your own mind and not fall victim to this invented controversy in this case about one paragraph. The paragraph which had said she didn't really at the point that point support boycotts, but that individuals could decide whether they wanted to support companies that hadn't spoken out about the law was changed to this. Audrey, rather than accept responsibility for their craven actions, Republican leaders blame me and others who have championed voting rights and actually read the bill. And, and I think the only reason this is, uh, I think Kevin makes a good point, Republicans really have jumped on this hard um, as an example of USA Today essentially colluding with Abrams uh, to allow her to attack them <laughs> instead of uh, suggesting that boycotts may not be necessary. Well, you know, I would, um, I would share an experience I've had multiple times. I mean, very often as a political scientist, we're asked to weigh in on things that happen and events. And, you know, sometimes, for example, this just happened to me, the Bloomberg, um, a Bloomberg reporter was doing a big story, and it was one that he was doing a lot of research on, asked me some questions. Then about a couple weeks later, when something very eventful had happened, he, he, gave, he called me back and said, you know, given this has happened, are you changing your mind on the prediction about how this will affect the Georgia economy? He gave me the courtesy of being able to address that. And very often things are written in advance, something happens, and a person may actually change their assessment of it. So I think that in this case, that's what happened. They were giving Stacey Abrams an, uh, an um, opportunity to um, revisit because something had happened, something had changed, an event had made things a bit different. Um, and, you know, the consequence of that is, you know, to me, fairly limited. Those, the, the, we're looking at how she interpreted that event and some of the things that happened. And you, as Kevin says, you can look at both of them and judge for yourself. But I do want to say there's nothing insidious about that. Um, journalists will give people like myself who are neutral 
um, Democrats, Republicans, the opportunity to revisit when something has happened because they want the truth, the real story, and your opinion. Um, all right. It's just an example of the kind of partisan uh, sniping back and forth that we are going to see all the way up, certainly, to the 2022 election. And I wanted to mention it because of that. Um, Audrey, while the ball is in your court, let me ask you about another story. Uh, we know that in uh, his COVID relief package, President Biden earmarked $5 billion for uh, uh, farmers of color, and, and it will certainly have an impact on African-American farmers right here in Georgia. The, the data show that far, black farmers have really been hit hard over decades of discrimination, uh, and it has hurt their ability to work their farms in the way they uh, would, would like to. Um, the, uh, but Stephen Miller, the former aide to uh, President Trump, top aide to President Trump, has now filed suit saying that um, this is discrimination. He says in his suit, the award of farm aid for farmers who've been hurt by this pandemic based on skin color is fundamentally un-American. And when it comes to getting financial aid, it shouldn't matter what race or ethnicity you are. You can't make a more equal country and you can't make a more unified country if we split and divide based on race. That policy is illegal. Uh, this is one of the reasons this is worthy of our conversation on Political Rewind is that Georgia now has two of uh, the most prominent African-American members of Congress working on agriculture issues. David Scott, chairman of the Farm Committee, Agriculture Committee in the House, and Raphael Warnock's on the Ag Committee in the Senate. Well, let me, again, context is very important. A couple of things. You know, this organization was created by Stephen Miller and Mark Meadows. And, um, you know, uh, the American First Legal Foundation is purporting that there are no other uh, entities out there that defend conservative values. And there are plenty of them um, out there. But in context, the, the last two major um, bailouts for farmers the statistics were that 97% of whites in one received an, uh, a bailout money, and the other one was 99% of, of the bailout money went to white farmers. So I would just ask, where was Stephen Miller then, you know, when he's very worried about discrimination against race? Because, you know, there is a long history of um, black farmers and other farmers of color not being included for various reasons. Um, so, um, and, and some of them may simply be the, the structural impediments to gaining that money tend to be biased towards particular groups as opposed to others. So I'm not sure where this will go, but this is important. He, um, he initiated this suit in Texas um, in federal district court and the, um, that uh, district and the appeals court district that it is in is the most conservative district has been for a long time and post-Trump administration with the appointments made there, a lot of people who study judicial politics call it the most radically conservative um, circuit court in the country. So if there was a chance for them to be successful on what most people would consider a pretty meritless case, this would be the one. Kevin? Well, you know, I'm sort of uh, hopeful that this sort of argument that Stephen Miller is putting forth with his group might, in the long haul, lead to some resolution of some things. And here's what it is. 
Audrey points out that um, the argument for giving Black Farmers Estate is a, a one that goes to history and some of the outcomes that have happened uh, throughout that history. And the argument is we ought to fix that and we ought to account for that. And it's time to do something active to change that. The argument on the conservative side is going to be all it needs to do is be fair now. And that is enough. If it is seen as fair now, that is enough. And those are two, the, those are the two, two of the huge uh, points of departure in our country around our history of race. And I think we've got to get to a point where we resolve that. It just at some point we have to decide, are we going to pay attention to the history or are we going to disregard the history? Is a level playing field today enough or does it need to be another kind of resolution? Um, it, your, your own reporting, Kevin, and I'm, I'm sorry to say I don't have the byline in front of me, but in a story about the $5 billion going to African-American farmers, uh, your uh, reporter on the story reported that over the past century, black farmers have lost more than 12 million acres of farmland, the result of systemic racism in lending and exclusion from agriculture programs. And those that's, a, that's cited... Uh, uh, the, the, the evidence of that is cited by agriculture evident of agricultural experts, excuse me, and the government's own admissions in court. So there is significant reason that you would want to find some way to, uh, and, and Audrey, you pointed it out, that most of the money has gone to white farmers, so you would, Audrey, want to find some way to bring black farmers back into the fold on this, uh, on funding. Let me jump in there, Bill. Uh, that work was by Ernie Suggs, who uh, who I know, oh, you thank know you. one thank of our you. one of our best yeah. reporters. Um, and and don't forget that uh, a number, a lot of the mission of the traditionally black universities and colleges that were set up, were, the the focus was on agriculture to make sure that uh, black farmers would have the best possible access to the best research and the best way to to make their farms work. And so this is a this is a big thing in Georgia. Kevin Riley, you get the last word in today's show. We're really glad that you could be with us today. Kevin, Audrey Haynes, you really brought it to the show today. You just had a lot of really insightful observations. And I'm as much as I'm always glad you're here. Thank you so much for being with us for Political Rewind today. Um, we're leaving you a little bit early because uh, we want to give you one last chance if you haven't joined us as a supporter of GPB yet, the chance to do it now. Uh, if you have, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, uh, the show needs your support, and we appreciate any way you can do that. Here's how you can. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear your mask above your nose, and since you've probably already been vaccinated, Tell your friend down the street it's time that she or he get vaccinated, too. Take care, everybody. 